Today on Not Cleared, we talked to Tommy Waller, who is the Center's Director of Infrastructure Security, and Kyle Scheiler, who is the Center's Director for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism. And we spoke with Tommy because he is a Marine veteran who served on the ground in Afghanistan. And we speak to him about his personal experience there. We give a history of the region and talk about the ideological background of the Taliban. And obviously everyone has seen the terrifying images of people literally clinging to planes as they're taking off from Kabul. And we finish with a discussion of how we got to where we are today with Afghanistan essentially crumbling at the hands of the Taliban. So obviously right now, Afghanistan is on everyone's mind. We're, we're seeing really terrible video and pictures of the, the people there that are really suffering. And what we want to do today is just talk about how we got to this point. And we're going to talk to Tommy Waller, who's our director of infrastructure security, who has served in Afghanistan, um, and and really evaluate why we were there in the first place and where it's gone wrong. So just to start with, the country itself is kind of made up of borders that were drawn somewhat arbitrarily by, by the British. And so it contains a lot of different ethnic groups and even more tribes um, that, so for example, half of Af- Afghans are Pashtun and, but two thirds of Pashtuns live in Pakistan right across that border. So this border divides them, but there's a lot of um, kinship between these people. It's just one example. And we can talk about how that becomes a problem in a minute, but the country is 75% mountains the Hindu Kush mountains, which are some of the tallest in the world. And um, this has created tons of tiny little isolated communities and valleys that have been independent of the rest of the world for thousands of years. And they have their own cultures and tribes and identities. So when we were in Afghanistan, um, we had to navigate through these narrow passageways that were incredibly easy, easy to sabotage and, and, um, I wanted to ask Tommy, what was it like to be in Afghanistan the first time that you you stepped off the plane? Yeah, uh, thank you, Morgan, uh, and and thanks for acknowledging um, just what's happening now on the ground. Um, I, I, honestly, I, I find myself uh, choked up uh, just about uh, in tears as I watch what's happening, what's unfolding at the moment. I think it's incredibly important for the American people to have an appreciation for. Um, the background that we're going to cover in this podcast. And I'll just tell you, you know, in terms of my background, yeah, I was, I really felt called to serve, uh, in, in the Marines all my, my entire life originally, uh, before the September 11th attacks, which took place my junior year of college. Um, you know, I thought my service was going to be against maybe, uh, you know, the drug cartels, um, nine 11 focused my attention, obviously. Um, uh, and so, you know, the preparation for, um, my service uh, in Afghanistan, you know, we can talk about a little bit as well when we get into what is it that the Taliban and Al Qaeda believe. But to answer your question, you know, what was I thinking before the helicopter landed? I, I deployed to Afghanistan in 2004 with the 22nd Marine Expeditionary Unit, a MU as it's called. And we had done uh, a full workup. I was in the boat company, you know, a MU floats around and essentially ready for a war. Uh, we had done an, a workup focused on being ready to do amphibious raids and instead found ourselves steaming across the Atlantic uh, to go to Afghanistan. And I just remember uh, being getting the intelligence briefs about uh, the landmines um, that the Soviets had, had, had laid there, uh, which I know you're going to talk about a little bit. You got some, some uh, good detail. I remember thinking, Every step I take, I got to be careful. I got to look around, right? I mean, it's just, you know, we were we were flying into uh, an old Russian airfield that had been abandoned decades before uh, to come in and establish uh, a Ford operating base for the Army to flow in after us. And then essentially for almost five months, our infantry battalion uh, hunted the Taliban and Al-Qaeda uh, in those mountains. And so you're, you're absolutely right about the terrain, about the villages that uh, are so far away from each other. Um, and so, you know, I, I look forward to continuing the, this conversation where, you know, through your overview of the background uh, and the conditions in that country, 
uh, perhaps myself and, and my colleague Kyle Scheidler can contribute to uh, the reality of what America faces uh, against this really, truly global jihad movement. Yeah, so just to get into what happened with the Soviets, in 1978, the government in Afghanistan was overthrown by leftist military officers who were supported by the Soviets. And the Soviets had to invade in 1979 to prop up this regime because it was wildly unpopular. They were enforcing atheism on a Islamic population, purging opposition, and enforcing all kinds of social reforms. So when the Soviet army invaded, um, they ran into a lot of the problems that we we did as well, one of which was that they had to go through these um, valleys where the Mujahideen who were basically, um, it, was, it was a bunch of different groups really, but um, in general, those that fought against the Soviets that had support from the United States and, and other groups as well. Um, Osama bin Laden was a member of the Mujahideen, I might add. So they would strike and retreat into the mountains and the Soviet military equipment couldn't follow them. Um, and Tommy, can you describe, could you, did you run into this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there were, there were times where some of these villages that we, um, that we moved to in the mountainous terrain, the last time that they had seen a Caucasian person was the Soviets and, and they were deathly afraid, uh, you know, and, and of course we, we be, we behave much different than the Soviets did. Uh, so just know. to jump in there really quick, what happened was because they couldn't identify the Mujahideen from civilians, the Soviets treated them all as enemy combatants and they couldn't control the villages. So they wanted to force everyone to move into the cities and to do that, they, um, killed all the livestock. They put landmines, which Tommy talked about, in farmland. They bombed villages. They created these these toy um, explosives that were designed to attract kids, not to kill them, but to maim them, thinking that an injured child would demoralize the family sufficiently to just accept what the Soviets wanted them to do. Um, so this, this policy killed over a million Afghans, and, and it would make sense that they were fearful. Yeah. And, and the difference, you know, we, we show up and, uh, you know, in, in our drop pouch, which is where you, you put it an expended empty magazine, you know, we'd have things like bags of Skittles and, and stuff like that, that, you know, we'd hand to the children. It was, it was very clear, very quickly, uh, particularly to the Afghan women that we were not there, um, to do them harm. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, I'll never forget uh, one of these villages, um, an Afghan woman who was battered, bruised, just completely beaten. She said, look, my husband's Taliban. And he went that way, right? Pointing towards one of the, uh, the mountains. Um, these are, these are people who have been oppressed both by, uh, as you mentioned, the Soviets and an incredibly repressive regime, the Taliban and, and a system, uh, that w- was of course established about 1400 years ago that they, that they adhere to. So, um, yeah, I think it's important to talk about, um, about that history and, and get into, uh, how, how did the Taliban even come to be uh, before? Right. So as part of the Soviet policies, there were a lot of refugees and a lot of them went to Pakistan. Um, and so, um, the Pashtuns organized, helped to organize resistance and send weapons and fighters to the other Pashtuns on, in, on the Afghan side. Um, and a lot of that was funded by the Saudis in the United States because it was against the Soviets. So in um, in Pakistan, the refugee camps were a dire, you know, not a great place for kids to grow up. And so their option was to go to, to Wahhabi madrasas that were funded by the Saudis and controlled by Pakistan intelligence that taught kids. Um, well, Kyle, can you define Wahhabism? Uh, sure. So... Um... Wahhabism is a uh, sect of Islamic jurisprudence, which just means, uh, you know, legal interpretations of Islamic law um, that came out of uh, Saudi Arabia. It was part of the driving element behind the unification of of the Arab tribes in Saudi Arabia, and it became the the primary uh, understanding of Islam that was dominant throughout the Gulf region. 
uh, you had sort of different sects in that were more influential in, in, in places like Africa or places like Afghanistan. Uh, but eventually, uh, in thanks to the oil wealth that the Gulf states had, uh, their sort of their sect uh, sort of started to predominate, and and they spent a lot of money uh, spreading that. It's certainly probably. I mean, would you say it's the most radical or intense form? It is. Uh, I mean, I think it's best to understand it as a revivalist form. So the you know the Wahhabis very much sought to return to a medieval uh, understanding where, uh, you know, you had no separation of church and state. You had religious rule under uh, theocratic uh, Sharia law. So, it, yeah, so it, it, it disregarded a lot of the accommodations that uh, the Muslim world had made you know, over the course of its, you know, the Islamic empire and so on with, in terms of de- how to deal with different uh, people. And, and they sort of say, no, we're going to go, we're going to go back to the original source material. Uh, we're not going to make any accommodations. Uh, and, and so that's, that's sort of the, the hallmark of Wahhabism in that sense. Right. And, and it's, it's important to know that, you know, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab and the Saudi tribe together violently conquered the Saudi Peninsula to establish, as 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 Kyle mentioned, that system which is Sharia. Um, so um, that when you think Wahhabi, just think bringing it back to the original Sharia, the original way um, that it was that it was practiced under under the founder uh, of Islam. Right. So 220,000 kids were enrolled in these schools in Pakistan, and they were also taught combat. And this is where the Taliban originated. Taliban actually just means student in Arabic. And so um, in 1988, the Soviets left. Their their uh, empire was starting to crumble as well. And the Mujahideen felt that they had, um, at that point, the Soviet Union was you know the second or considered one of the most powerful empires in the world other than the United States. And the Mujahideen believed that they were the cause of their of the Soviet collapse, which is not true. But um, that so what was left is just a bunch of Mujahideen that they turned and fought each other. There were there was a civil war, and um, Mullah Omar was a, a guy who started to take over parts of Afghanistan, and Pakistan intelligence helped him by providing arms and training, and then sending these kids that had been at the madrasas, the Taliban kids, to to, that were now adults to fight. So the Taliban took over the majority of the country and in 19, so they ruled from 1996 to 2001 um, other than the Northern Alliance. And they strictly enforced Sharia law, which meant that women had to cover from head to toe. They could not leave the house without a male escort. Um, you know, for a woman that was raped, let's say she would have to be stoned to death to restore the honor of her family. Um, they closed any entertainment or movie theaters. There was no music allowed. Um, just really intense and and not the funnest place to live, you could say. Yeah, it, it, it clearly, Morgan. It, it was um, the impact of the Taliban's uh, establishment and enforcement of Sharia uh, was was heavy handed and felt on the people. I, I remember, um, you know, uncovering in one village we were searching for um, weapons caches uh and and we found cassette tapes right in this in this house and it was like the homeowner was so scared that we found these cassette tapes and we were trying to figure out what like why is this guy worried and it was like look this is music like if, if people know i have music i'm dead right i mean think about that compared to to what we to what we know here um and and the taliban you said i mean it they're students. That's what it. That's that's the uh, the word means students. But it's it's students of of the of the Quran and the Sunnah and the Sharia, and and they're trained in combat, and that combat's called jihad, you know. And, and so that's um, what what really separated the people who were were peaceful towards us as Americans, and those who wanted to fight us and do them harm was was that it was the sharia 
So I want to go back to what you said about the cassette tapes there. What is the reasoning or rationale behind not letting people have music? Is it just to show that you'll agree to do whatever they tell you to, or is it something deeper than that? No, it's it's ideological. Uh, So, you know, it's if if you have music, then you'll have dancing. If you have dancing, then you'll have men and women dancing together. If you have that, you'll have uh, all manner of illicit relations. Uh, So it's, it's, um, and that is death by stoning, I think. Yeah, I mean, potentially. For illicit, yeah. So, but and here's the other thing too is, it, and this gets into really how the individual interprets it. Um, but in some cases, and, and this was in Iraq that I saw um, people murdered because they were they were drinking something that had ice in it. And I asked my interpreter, I'm like, why were these people murdered? I say, what well, is these are the Wahhabis. Okay, explain. Well, they say you, you, if if it, if Muhammad didn't do it, then we can't do it. You know, and th- look, and throughout this conversation, it's important to note that my understanding of Sharia didn't really come until after I left the active duty service and and began working for the Center for Security Policy with colleagues like Kyle, where we were encouraged to study it. Uh, and so, you know, at the end of the day. Uh, what we see unfolding in Afghanistan as the failure of the United States government's policies in that region, it, it all boils down to to not having understood that doctrine from the very beginning. And so I'm glad that throughout this this conversation, we can touch on it a little bit as we, we sort of tell the story of that country. Well, I mean, a, a perfect example of that, Tommy, is, uh, you know, the U.S. State Department spokesman Ned Price came out um this week and said, you know, we hope that the Taliban government will be inclusive and include women and so on and so forth. And the Taliban spokesman's response was, you know, all men and women will have their appropriate rights under Sharia. And which means none for women, by the way, which means, yeah, which means very little. And if you go back to the history of the U.S. negotiations with the Taliban, uh, in Doha, which has taken place over a period of 10 years, they have repeatedly made statements like this, uh, that the U.S. officials, because they didn't understand uh, the ideology, took it face value. Like, oh, you want to work with us? Oh, great. Oh, you want to be inclusive? Great. Oh, you're going to protect women's rights? Awesome. Uh, because they don't actually understand uh, what the Taliban is saying when they say we will give them all their rights under under Sharia. That's a great point. And I think, you know, we've dealt with this on the domestic side where there's a lot of debate in the United States about what Sharia means. And the sort of intellectual answer would be that it's um, means a lot of different things and they have their own interpretation rather than just listening to what jihadists say it means and taking them at their word for it. Would you agree with that, Kyle? Yeah. And I mean, I think we we come out of a Western perspective, which uh, really honors the notion of rights to conscience. So we sort of assume that everyone has a right to interpret their religious documents as they choose. Uh, That's actually a very modern concept. And it and it does not ex- it, it did not exist, um, you know, under the Sharia. There's just no such thing. Um, yes, you can do certain interpretation if you are a, a scholar of of, uh, of the Islamic jurisprudence, but the average person cannot. You know, the guy that Tommy met in the village doesn't get to say, "Oh, I think that for me it's okay to listen to music because I, you know, uh, my understanding of my religion." is such that, uh, you know, that I can, that I can do that. He, he, he will always risk someone else coming in and saying, no, you can't do that. And I'm going to punish you if you do. Right. And what, what Kyle, the other thing to mention, uh, on that point of a Western understanding, you know, it, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around this sometimes. And I'll give you just an example. I know we're talking about Afghanistan, but bringing it back home for just a second, think about San Bernardino, right? Tashfin Malik. Uh, she, she's the woman who, uh, with her husband, uh, Syed Rizwan Farouk, strapped GoPro cameras to her body, um, handed off her six-month-old child to her mother, and went and executed her husband's co-workers while it was live-streamed for the Islamic State to watch. 
Now, what reasonable person, right? I mean, let's think about it in a good versus evil perspective. Most Americans would agree that's an evil act and it's unreasonable for a young mother uh, to give her child over and commit murder. Yet, if you look at Islamic law and what it says is the reward for a shaheed, a martyr, the moment that her blood touched the dirt, she was assured not just for her, but for her family and assured path to paradise. And so the, the key here is, is understanding Sharia. And, and so one of, one of the most authoritative books on that is called The Reliance of the Traveler. And I know, Kyle, you've got your copy there. I've got my copy here. You know, um, on the very first pages, after all of the seals of approval from all the, the most prominent schools of, of Sunni Islamic jurisprudence, like Al-Azhar University, on Alpha 2, before the, the book even starts, it talks about the knowledge of good and evil. And so for us as Americans, we think of good, we, we think reason, reason can help us determine good and evil. Here's what it says. It says, the good is not what reason considers good, nor the bad what reason considers bad. The measure of good and bad, according to the school of thought, is the sacred law, not reason. So all of us can sit here and think about the the think about how much joy you get when you listen to good music. Seems reasonable that humans would want to be able to participate in that joy. But that's not the measure of good and evil. It's the sacred law, it's Sharia under this system. So it's just an important thing for us to understand. And I think there was this clip going around Twitter a couple of days ago that I think is just emblematic of how we're talking about how the West doesn't really have a great understanding of Sharia, where there was the CNN reporter that was over there near Kabul, I'm assuming, somewhere in Afghanistan. And in, in a full black burqa, uh-huh. by the way. And, and she's the, the quote, and I watched the video because I was like, she can't actually be saying this, but she says, quote, they're chanting death to America, but they seem friendly at the same time, unquote. <laughs> I think there's a very fine line between taking their word for something or actually reading and understanding exactly what they're saying. Yeah. Well, that Matthew, that sounds a lot like the quote, peaceful protests that the uh, newscasters were trying to tell us as the cities burn behind them. I mean, look, the media has catastrophically failed the American people when it comes to this topic from day one. Okay. Uh, the, the media, academia, the U S government's intelligence, uh, apparatus. If, if all we have to do is listen to them at their word and read the books they read, uh, and we'll understand them. And then, and then, yeah, just begin it's to not form as our compli- Right. It's not as complicated as we've made it out to be. Um, or, or at least as, as the smart people say it is. So going back to sort of how we got there now in, obviously in sep- in 2001, September 11th attack. So at that point, Al Qaeda had been operating in Afghanistan with the Taliban's blessing and President Bush demanded that the Taliban hand over bin Laden, and they refused. So on October 7th, 2001, the United States with NATO allies invaded Afghanistan with the goal to kill or capture Osama bin Laden, senior al-Qaeda, and Taliban leaders. In December 2001, the Taliban had been driven from power, um, but not captured. Not all of them had been captured. So they kept launching strikes on our troops. And at this point, Osama bin Laden and, and most of the leaders were probably in Pakistan. We don't know where they were the entire time, but um, Osama bin Laden was killed in Pakistan in 2011. So at that point, there was something called the Bonn Agreement where the UN um, you know, sanctioned it and or the UN Security Council created the International Security Assistance Force to oversee and train the Afghan military and the Afghan leaders met to create a, a plan for the future country and Hamid Karzai was elected as the national interim leader. So, so uh, can I jump in there real yes, quick please Morgan, do. On, on a couple of points that are important. So uh, first thing to know when the U.S. Uh, moved into Afghanistan we did so in cooperation with Uh, what's called the Northern Alliance. The Northern Alliance was a group of uh, Mujahideen who had fought the Soviets uh, and had also fought the Taliban. They were um, distinct from the Taliban for a couple of reasons. 
but one of which was ethnic and tribal reasons. The Northern Alliance was primarily uh, Tajiks and and uh, other uh, other ethnicities, and the Taliban was predominantly Pashtun. So, with the Northern Alliance, we successfully pushed the Taliban out of uh, Afghanistan. Uh, but then, when you're talking about putting in Hamid Karzai, Karzai was a Pashtun, and he was brought in to be the leader with sort of the view that um, you couldn't govern a you couldn't govern Afghanistan except with with a Pashtun leader because they're the majority uh, in Afghanistan. So a lot of people don't understand why that switch was made, but it, but it was made because it, there was a view that the Northern Alliance, who had helped us win the country, uh, could not form a, a central government to represent all of, all of Afghanistan. Right. So at this point, I think there the mission started to shift a bit on the U.S. end. Yeah, it's called, it, Morgan, it's called Mission Creep. Can you and define it, that, Tommy? Yeah, well, it's just, it's when, you know, an operation becomes w- way more than it ever should have in the first place. Um, mission creep uh, occurs when things aren't planned out in such a way that you have, for example, a withdrawal plan in mind before you start. I mean, just over the last couple of days, I've talked to a couple of the uh, retired sergeants major, uh, senior enlisted Marines, who I know as we, we watch what's unfolding in Afghanistan. And, and it, you know, the, the wisdom that comes from a, a senior enlisted Marine just saying, hey, this is expected because there was no plan for withdrawal from the beginning, right? And so when you don't have a plan for withdrawal, you get mission creep. And and that's what uh, that's what essentially has happened. But, you know, we, we should ask ourselves if we had an understanding. You, Morgan, you already mentioned a few things about the difficulties of the terrain, these villages that are so far apart, the the um, ethnic makeup. I mean, do we really expect, if we understood all of that, that we could create the type of government that we have here in America? Um, and and Kyle began to talk about uh, all of the negotiations and and the the things that be- began p- between the U.S. government, um, well, eventually, and, and then the Taliban. But we got to look at like who. Who was it? What network was influencing U.S. policy from the very beginning? Right. Go go back to to President Bush, who I think at, at the at the time was trying to do the right thing. I mean, look, I, one of one of the Marines who uh, was under my command in, in Iraq, who was killed, you know, his parents showed President Bush a picture of their son. And he right there on the spot, he started crying. You know, I think his heart was in the right place. But go back and look at, you know, the C-SPAN speech that he gave when he said, you know, Islam is a religion of peace. Who's standing right behind him over his left shoulder? It's Nihad Awad, you know, who who is a senior Muslim Brotherhood member in the United States. So this mission creep didn't just happen because we failed to understand and appreciate the human terrain, the physical terrain of Afghanistan. It was also encouraged by people who had an incentive, I think, to misinform the U.S. government to not ever study that doctrine our enemies follow. I think that's true, Tommy, but I think it, the problem is bigger than that because it's not just that Afghanistan and Iraq have been failures. The arguably U.S. foreign policy for the last 60, 70 years has other, maybe with the exception of of the Reagan administration, has has failed. We haven't fully won a war since World War II. And I think the problem is that we have this expert class of people that think that they can shape the world how they want it to be. And this is the type of people that started to say things like nation building and we're going to, um, you know, just create the institutions. All it takes is institutions in Afghanistan. So they're going to have a constitution and we're going to give them all the trappings of democracy and then that's going to work. When in reality, it's not only the ideology issues that we've discussed already, but the tribal, very complex tribal customs that we don't fully understand that are very complicated, ethnic identities, and none of that was considered. It was just, oh, this works for us. It's going to work for them. And I think that it's hard to overstate the hubris of the people in control crafting these policies. And what I mean by that is a lot of bureaucrats. 
Well, I guess that brings us back to the the whole reason for this podcast, right? Not clear. I mean, we're the quote expert class that's supposed to tell us um, what we need to know about these places of the world and, and these enemies clearly uh, did not have an appreciation for that at the time. Right. So um, at this point, we still don't have Osama bin Laden. And so, um, but we're still there. And by 2003, it was a full-blown insurgency. And Tommy, you deployed in 2004. So what was going on and what was your mission at that point? We we were tasked with establishing um, a forward operating base in the Aruzgan province, a place called Taran It's just north of Kandahar. Uh, at the time, it was extremely austere. I think I mentioned before, it was an old Russian airfield that had been abandoned. Uh, and, and we initially flew in there and established a foothold. And then began to to pursue uh, the Taliban and Al Qaeda through throughout the mountainous terrain of the Aruzgan province. Now, in some cases, and, and this goes to your point, Morgan, about the tribal issues, we we had some tribal leaders who were willing to help us find who we we were told was the Taliban. Which sometimes, in retrospect, I I wondered whether it was just perhaps another tribe they didn't like. And this is something about Afghanistan we have to understand is. And we see it happening right now. Uh, these these tribes, these villagers and fighters, will switch sides in a heartbeat, uh, either for self preservation or just because it's it's that opportune time for them to get back at someone who made war uh, in the previous generation. So, uh, in a lot of ways, you know, um, our ability to to pursue the enemy. It was was informed sometimes by people on the ground uh, who may just have had uh, to settle a score. And at the same time, you know, at the national level, those policies were being influenced by by people in America who were who truly at the end of the day want the same global caliphate as what Taliban want. <laughs> so yeah, I um, think it's interesting too, Tommy, to to note. So in 2001, when we go into Afghanistan, we seem to have a pretty good understanding that the way to take Afghanistan is to cobble together uh, a series of tribal alliances, you know, made on the spot through, you know, agreements and cash. Uh, and we were very successful at that. It obviously works. Uh, but then as soon as we're responsible for defending the country and trying to establish the central government, it never seemed to occur to us again that that was not how Afghanistan did things. Uh, you know, we, we tried to stand up this large, uh, you know, you talked about the ISAF, uh, Morgan, that was responsible for this training, trying to st- stand up this large central government uh, that was supposed to rule the whole country from Kabul which was, of course, the same thing that the Soviets had tried to do and failed, uh, when the reality was, uh, in order to pursue our actual mission, our desired mission of targeting uh, specific Taliban and, and al-Qaeda leaders, that wasn't really necessary. What was on, The only part that was necessary was making the necessary agreements with uh, the relevant tribe in order to accomplish uh, your goal. And so you, you try to inject into Afghanistan a Western view of how wars ought to be fought when they only have this tribal notion that you mentioned, you know, of, of longstanding rivalries and, and, you know, getting back at one another and switching sides uh, when it's convenient. And you're trying to build this long, uh, this, this Western military, you know, and uh, for people who are watching the collapse of Afghanistan, didn't seem to understand, well, how is it that we spent 20 years building this Afghan military and then it fell apart in a matter of, of it wasn't really months, it uh, wasn't really days, it was actually months or even years, but uh, it looked like it was days. Uh, and it was because we were trying to build this thing uh, and graft it onto an Afghanistan that it where it didn't really fit. Right. And that got really, it was hard to draw the direct line from American interest, national security interest, to building the ISAF, right? Theoretically, you could say if Afghan, if if we fight them over there, they can't fight us over here. Um, if Afghanistan is stable, then we won't have to go back and those kinds of things. But it was clear the U.S. interest in hunting down Osama bin Laden and 
and Al Qaeda leaders, right? Um, and we just again, Tommy, you mentioned the mission creep. So around 2000, set, well, Obama is elected in 2008, and at that point, America is tired of fighting this war. Obama says he's going to bring our our troops home. And in 2009, Hamid Karzai is elected, and he had wanted to start negotiating with the Taliban since 2007. And he made several attempts offering all kinds of things to entice the Taliban to negotiate with him. And at this point, the United States throughout, even going back to 2001 with the bond agreement, um, we've always, our, our policy was we are not going to negotiate with the Taliban. They're terrorists. So in 2010, the Obama administration made a major shift and decided that they would start negotiating with the Taliban secretly through third parties. Um, and part of that, part of the problem there is that it wasn't clear where these Taliban leaders were to begin negotiations. So they established a tribal council to help find the leaders and to start peace talks. And they, so they, they would send these leaders to a foreign country where they would be promised protection so that they could negotiate. And, and in also, Morgan, they, uh, they let Taliban leaders out of Guantanamo Bay Correct. In order to send them, uh, send them to represent the Taliban in negotiation. What could so possibly we liter- go wrong? We right. literally let people out of jail so that we could negotiate with them. Right. So in 2011, they met with Taliban leaders in Germany and Qatar, and um, the Taliban, their their stated goal was to release, to get leaders released from Guantanamo. So around 2011, um, this office of the Taliban with a flag and everything was opened in Doha, Qatar, where it was considered a neutral enough country that both parties were happy. The Taliban leaders there, by the way, were living the high life. Um, And this is when the United States started negotiating. So in March 2012, the Taliban stopped talking to the United States until we released the Taliban Five, who were the equivalent of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States. And we did in exchange for Bo Bergdahl, who had been held by the Taliban since 2009 after deserting the military. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, Morgan, let me jump in for a second because I just I, I want to express, um, you know, what what does that do to the to the warrior spirit? Right. So Sergeant Bo Bergdahl deserted his post. OK. And people died trying. I mean. People, people died obviously trying to capture these Taliban and Al-Qaeda fighters who ended up in Guantanamo Bay. Many people risked their lives. Then people risked their lives searching for Bo Bergdahl, who willingly deserted. Okay, And at that time, you had, you had the Obama administration's national security advisor, Susan Rice. She stated that Bergdahl, quote, served in the United States with honor and distinction. With honor and distinction. And so we... <laughs> So we trade a deserter for a great analogy, Morgan, essentially their equivalent of the of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the Taliban. And so it should be no surprise that the Taliban was able to rapidly execute what they have uh, and what we see unfolding now uh, when we make such blunders. Right. So this is 2014 now that the Obama. So in 2014, the Obama administration announced that the combat mission would end after the end of the year, and the mission would shift to just training Afghan forces and conducting counterterrorism operations. Part of that, part of the reason for that was to get the Taliban on board with negotiating, because the Taliban had said that as long as foreign forces were in the country, they wouldn't negotiate. So Obama was saying, hey, we're not going to be there in a combat capacity to try to further appease them. What that means in in reality is that our troops have not been in Afghanistan fighting the Taliban since 2014. So we've been, you know, and how, I mean, how long ago was that, right? Um, Seven years? So we've been in Afghanistan for seven years, not fighting the Taliban. Right. Uh, And at that point, the, as part of that, the rules of engagement for the soldiers that were there changed. So it meant that, for example, these are just two um, troops were required to be in contact with enemy forces before opening fire. Um, they had proximity requirements about how close the enemy was to Afghan or U.S. advised special forces before they could take any action. 
all of these um, in 2017, Matt, General Mattis changed the rules of engagement. But prior to that, we really limited what our our soldiers were able to do. And Tommy, can you speak to that at all? Sure. Yeah. Look, um, the American military is the most compassionate military force on this earth. And I remember, I remember, uh, you know, in, uh, in the run up to the, the Obama administration's, uh, uh, you know, in the election being just seeing the, the, the news where, you know, elected official after elected official, people who are running for office talk about the brutality of the United States and, and then the, uh, the forgiveness tour, if you want to call it that, whatever it was uh, at the beginning of the Obama administration, where they talked about just how brutal we were. I, I froze my, my rear end off on a mountain in Afghanistan wrapped in a in a VS-17 air panel because that's all we had to stay warm because the Taliban fighters we captured that night, we gave all of the blankets and warming layers to, okay? Um, and so I, I want to just preface it by saying that the military is compassionate, um, but then when it's time to fight, we've got to be We've got to be able to use the tools and techniques and the and the utmost violence that we are called by the American people to use as a military force. And so, yeah, what you're describing, Morgan, I, I, of course, my, my Afghanistan deployment was well before those rules of engagement changed. I, I did face uh, in, in my two tours in, in Iraq, I did have uh, times where the rules of engagement were such that it made it very difficult to do certain things. Uh, but that's a huge piece. If you're going to employ military force, um, you, you need to do everything you can to allow the military force to be that. If you're going to do diplomatic work, let the diplomats do that. Um, so I can't imagine what, what our guys and, and, and gals had to go through with such restrictive rules. And I'm, and I'm glad under the Trump administration and with General Mattis that that changed. Right. So from 2014 onward, basically, we were negotiating with the Taliban on and off. And every time the Taliban were the ones that refused to negotiate with us. And we offered various appeasements. Um, in 2018, there's a new president of Afghanistan. I can't remember when he was elected, but Ashraf Ghani. And in 2018, he proposed unconditional peace talks with the Taliban, saying, we'll give you recognition as a legal political party. We'll release your prisoners, whatever you want. Just please come to the negotiating table. Um, and American officials met with the Taliban members secretly in June of 2018. So again, the Taliban is not showing up, but fine. And, you know, refusing things on and off, but by February, 2020, the United States and the Taliban signed a peace agreement in Doha. Kyle, do you want to speak to that at all? Yeah. So why, why Doha, right? Why, why Qatar? Well, part of the reason was, uh, you know, when they established that the Taliban embassy, and I think it was actually 2014, I misspoke earlier, um, that was done through the arrangements with the Qatari government, uh, which offered to assist us to make sure that the Taliban were, were playing fairly and were not using the embassy for, you know, terrorism or something like that. Um, but... <laughs> The issue is that the Qataris are um, very close to the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, and as Tommy said, that was the reason why they were. That was the reason, really, why they were picked. Uh, they were picked because the Taliban understood that they would have a very friendly audience in Qatar. Uh, that that Qatar would represent a mediator who was more on their side than on the U.S. side. Uh, and they, they rejected other options to go to other places because they wanted the Qataris to be the to be the mediator. And this just gets into again not really understanding the the larger uh, situation at play, where we thought we could sit down with the Taliban and negotiate in this environment that they had a that they had a uh, advantage. And then uh, as we're sitting there, you know, listening to the Taliban, we don't actually, uh, as we talked about before, have diplomats who really understand what the Taliban is saying. When the Taliban says that they're going to, you know, they're going to do X or Y, we don't actually have a real understanding of what that means because we haven't taken the time to actually study them. So the agreement basically 
was that the United States and all NATO troops will withdraw and the Taliban will prevent al-Qaeda from taking over um, or operating under areas of their control. And the Taliban will agree to have talks with the Afghan government. The Afghan government was not involved in this deal at all, by the way. Um, And so we committed to closing our military bases and reducing troop levels. Right. So on March 6th in 2021 this year, Ashraf Ghani said that his government would start peace talks with the Taliban. Um, And in April, the Biden administration announced that it would withdraw the the remaining 2,500 troops from Afghanistan by September 11th, 2021, which is a terrible date to have chosen um, the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. And we said, hey, uh, we support the Afghan government. The Taliban's not going to take over, I believe, on July 8th. Biden said that the Taliban was in, there's no danger of the Taliban taking over. So, Kyle, can you sort of, or actually, Tommy, can you sort of sum up what's gone on since then and just the logistics of us leaving and why it's turned into such a mess? Well, you know, so first of all, um, to to specifically state an, a date that you will withdraw by um, and, and giving the enemy publicly uh, that date is one thing. To make it by September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, is to hand to them what they consider uh, massive spiritual inf- in- inspiration and at the same time demoralize uh, I, I would argue, m- many on our side. And so, um, it, you know, that was four and a half months. Now, granted, the withdrawal was supposed to have been taking place for years and many, many, many months already, right? Um, so theoretically, y- you would think that the number of American citizens in Afghanistan would be known and their locations the number of aid workers and, and foreign allies citizens in the country would be known um, and plans would have been made for their departure. It, that does not seem to be the case. Now, I understand, you know, having watched um, statements on this uh, from the administration that many of them did not want to leave initially. They didn't want to show that there was a lack of confidence. They wanted to keep trying to help. But, you know, at some point you, you have to you got to think about just the bare bones logistics of runways, aircraft, number of people, and security involved with the movement of those people. And you know, five days ago, uh, you know the the spokesman, the media spokesman from the White House said, you know, this is not a neo, a non combatant evacuation operation. Um, well, what does that it, mean? So a, a NEO, a non-combatant evacuation operation, is one type of mission that's performed by military units. Like I talked to you before about the MU, the Marine Expeditionary Unit. It's to get people out of a country who are not combatants, right? It's, it's, very, it's normally related to another mission of the MU, which is embassy reinforcement, right? So the scenario normally goes, uh, things get bad in a country. Um, our service members fly in to re- reinforce an embassy. If they then have to close the embassy, they do a NEO, a non-combatant evacuation operation, and they get our people out of the country. And so what you had was five days ago, um, Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby saying, this isn't a NEO. Quote, um, the purpose here is to help with the reduction of civilian personnel out of the embassy. This is not the same as a non-combatant evacuation operation where you're moving a massive amount of people who aren't necessarily U.S. government employees. It's a different operation altogether, and we're just not there. Well, five days later, we're more than there. I mean, we're, we're it, look at what's happening right now. So, you know, it, w- what it tells me is that there was not an appreciation for the swiftness with which the country would fall. Um and, right. and just, the logistics involved in getting the good people out. Right. There was an intelligence assessment that came out over the weekend that said that um, it was possible Kabul could fall in 90 days. Well, that's happened. Um, so, again, just I, I can tell you community. that I was talking with friends of mine who have watched Afghanistan for 20 years. And it was probably the day that they put out that that assessment that it was going to be 90 days. 
uh, my friend says, I bet you it doesn't last the weekend. And of course it didn't. So this idea that people who were Afghan watchers uh, thought that the Afghan military would last 90 days. Nobody. I don't I, I don't believe for a moment that anybody serious believed that. No, just the people we pay to look at these things. Meaning just the people who are paid to, yeah. yeah, who are paid to do it. The other thing I think I, is worth pointing out when we get into why the U.S. government wasn't prepared to withdraw is, and I think it's confusing for people because they'll say, well, you know, did we want to get out or didn't we want to get out? We were negotiating for 10 years to withdraw, right? So why weren't we prepared to withdraw? Well, part of the, the, the way things work in Washington, D.C. is that negotiations are perpetual. Negotiations are forever. Uh, they're not really so much a tool for achieving statescraft as they are in industry where people, uh, you know, people draw their salaries. So you've got, you know, the Palestinian peace process, which has been going on for more decades than I have been alive. Uh, and I think that was the expectation. The expectation in official Washington was we can just continue to sit across the table and negotiate forever and ever. And we'll stay in Afghanistan forever and ever. And it'll all be OK. And we'll just muddle along. Uh, the problem with that, of course, was uh, the American people didn't want to stay. And so, uh, you know, the Trump administration wanted to get out, although the Obama administration wanted to get out, they were presented with a negotiation plan. The Trump uh, administration wanted to get out. They were presented with a negotiation plan. Uh, and then any effort to say, well, we need to start preparing to leave, they'd say, well, no, we're still negotiating. We're still negotiating um, because they never really they never really wanted to leave, uh, you know, in, in official Washington. Well, and think about this too, right? If if you're negotiating with a, an element that doctrinally is not just permitted to lie, but obligated to lie to you, then what about the scenario that the Taliban um, and, and this negotiation process is such that it just keeps the hope alive in such a way that we don't properly prepare so that when the time comes, th th we see what's happening now. The, the country collapses far more rapidly. Again, a deception of the, the quote, expertise in our intelligence community because of a failure to understand the doctrine that that, 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 par that other party follows, right? Uh, and so that, that's an well, element. And, and even more than that, Tommy, I think they needed to believe that the Taliban was a, uh, an interlocutor with which they could do business in order to justify the continued peace process. If they, un if they understood the concept uh, that uh, the Taliban would only negotiate in good faith when they thought that they were uh, in, in defeat and needed to negotiate in order to survive, which is, which is what their doctrine is, uh, then they would say, well, why negotiate with the Taliban that wants to negotiate? But the Taliban was only negotiating in, or, in order to achieve uh, to achieve a better objective. Uh, I mean, the, the notion that diplomats don't understand that the people across from them are lying uh, is hard to believe, right? We we have this image that the purpose of a diplomat is to to lie to other people and to have those people lie to you. Uh, but in Washington D.C. You know, that is an art that has long, long been lost. And again, I think that is a, a hubris thing where American diplomats are like, no, but not that. I mean, you see it with presidents too. Uh, Bush saying that he looked into Putin's eyes and he understood him. And people just feel like, well, no, but we have a good relationship. I, um, Margaret Thatcher was the same way with Gorbachev. You meet someone face to face and it's hard to believe that they would lie to you, um, at least from the Western perspective. And we get bamboozled. Yes, yes. thank you. And and that's look, that's the, the Muslim Brotherhood really is the nexus through which all of these jihadi groups operate. And the Muslim Brotherhood guy is going to be the friendliest guy you'll ever meet, right? Uh, and it's takia. That's the word for it. It's called sacred deception. I think Morgan, one of the things that we we ought to think about and talk about a little bit is what is what is to come. 
Yeah. What, what's the future hold now based on well, what we see unfolding? So just now we've sent, I think 7,000 is the total number of troops that we've sent there to evacuate. What are they going to be doing, Tommy? And, and what does that look like for them? I, it, I, I have been praying my family and I together for the people in Afghanistan and particularly our, our troops constantly, because what they are faced with right now uh, is, it, you know, mission impossible when it comes to sorting through the mess that's there. And so at this very moment, there are groups of uh, our allies, American citizens, people who helped us and their dependents uh, desperately trying to get out of the country. And the Taliban is hunting them and executing them and bringing the, the, the widows and, and orphan girls into sexual slavery in accordance with their law. That's happening right now, real time. And our military is faced with the, the job of securing that point of exit, the Kabul International Airport, um, and trying to discern between who gets to be on that plane and who doesn't. And so that's an incredibly difficult job. You know, a Marine Expeditionary Unit does a, a six-month workup uh, for the many different missions that it has to do, uh, one of which is that NEO. This is so much bigger than a NEO. I mean, this is this is humanitarian assistance and disaster response mission of epic proportions. And so, you know, my, my personal thought is that we we have we have a lot of, of young military personnel with a passion to serve and a passion to defend innocent people who are there to fight. That's what they join to do. And we, I hope, have leaders that are going to be willing to unleash that that warrior spirit against the Taliban in the places it needs to happen right now in Afghanistan to get our people, our allies, and our friends out of the country. What I fear is a response similar to what we saw on September 11th and September 12th and the days that followed in 2012, where a U.S. consulate in Benghazi was attacked and we didn't respond with the with the, the military forces that were poised to respond, who wanted to go, who said, send me, please, right? Um, I know right now that there are people who are asking, send me, let me go, let me fight these Taliban, let me find these innocent people who need to be rescued. And I think that that, that needs to happen to get them out. And then as we leave, we need to leave with a wake-up call, with a lesson learned. Um, all, all the things that we've discussed in this podcast, but but most importantly, studying the doctrine of our enemy from day one before we get involved. I just want to end on this note. I think there's a, a casualness in Washington about sending troops places and and it's just, oh, it's, it's not a big deal. But um, there were 2,448 American service members killed through the end of April of this year, 3,846 U.S. contractors killed. And that does not include any of the injuries, but beyond that too, the, the toll that it takes on people that fight in wars. Um, there was a letter from a veteran to Dan Bongino that he read on air. And I just want to read part of it now. A lot of people don't understand what it's like coming home from combat after doing things for your country. We have to live with what we've done. I feel I forfeited any chance to see my daughters in the afterlife. When your ROEs were to smoke check anyone with a shovel and an orange bucket, including kids, it was like the wild west and your enemy changes you. You grow a hate inside you that you can't come to terms with. You watch your Marines die. You watch them get maimed, losing legs, arms, private parts, all the while knowing the locals knew where the IEDs and ambushes were, but they didn't tell you during one of the many of the shuras you sat in on. He continues, you hate yourself because you lived. You hate yourself because you, your Marine killed himself when we got home and you couldn't prevent it. You hate yourself because you get drunk texts from your Marine telling you they love you and thanking you for what you did for them over there but they're hurting because you had to give them orders to kill kids. You have to carry that hate for the rest of your life. It doesn't go away. It's actually gotten worse. You have nightmares almost every night. You hardly sleep. Your daughters die in really bad ways in your dreams, and you fear it's punishment for what you did, and they may come true. But America doesn't care now. You're a statistic at best. You're hated at worst. Tommy, as as a veteran, can you speak to that and, and as an officer, the toll that it's taken on on people that you've served with? Yeah, Morgan, absolutely. I mean, I kind of get choked up just hearing those words because uh, it's true, right? Um, 
the, the Marines I know who've suffered the worst uh, post-traumatic stress are, are ones who tried to do everything they could that was right, but it, re- it resulted in, for example, children being killed. Um, I mentioned to you before, the U.S. military is the most compassionate there is. Uh, there were many scenarios I, I had in Iraq where we watched as IEDs were being planted, where the jihadis had children running around the vehicles and the area they were digging specifically as human shields. We didn't shoot those guys at that time because of that. Uh, in some cases, uh, as, as was probably the case in, in the, the person's email that he sent to Mr. Bongino, um, they made the best decision they could with the information they had. I, I, I watched that unfold numerous times. Just heartbreaking, heartbreaking um, situations where people who aren't supposed to die uh, are, are killed. It absolutely takes a toll on our service members. Uh, and and I, I've been personally, I've been blessed with uh, uh, the opportunity to, to attend something called Operation Restored Warrior, you know, for the those that, that are listening to this podcast, if they know somebody in the military uh, or a veteran who's struggling with, uh, with post-traumatic stress, uh, ORW, Operation Restored Warrior, um, is a phenomenal program. There's many of them. Uh, the Mighty Oaks Foundation, uh, you know, right now, um, a friend of mine, Chad Robichaud, who runs the Mighty Oaks Foundation, is working tirelessly to help people that he served with in Afghanistan get out of that country. Uh, and, and he uh, routinely helps with veterans who are suffering. Ultimately, so much of this hurt comes from having lost, from having failed, from watching what's unfolding right now before our very eyes on TV and knowing of the sacrifices that took place for what, right? And yes, there, there, is, there is a reality that, you know, every jihadi that we killed there, theoretically, would, it, 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 and it really does help prevent them from coming here, right? Um, but we're at a point now, because of our lack of understanding of the enemy doctrine, and particularly the enemy networks, which exist, exist right here at home, We're at a point where we used to send our Marines and sailors and soldiers overseas to fight jihad on foreign soil. Jihad's here now. Look no further than Chattanooga, Pensacola. We have jihadis killing American service members on American soil, and they're expected to be protected by local law enforcement. And so I guess that the the thing that I'll mention for those that are listening is something that that hopefully Kyle and I will be able to bring to communities around this country, communities that want to understand that network, because make no mistake about it, this victory for the Taliban, for Al-Qaeda, for the global jihad is such a spiritual inspiration that we are about to see a very similar situation as what we saw after June 2014 with the reestablishment of a global caliphate with Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in Iraq. I remember 2014, 2015, this explosion of violence around the world, not just in Iraq, but in Europe, in America. And, you know, people in our government, the quote experts, just couldn't figure it out. Why? Why is this happening? It's because a, there was a an event that inspired the global jihad to know that that they had the momentum physically and spiritually in their estimation. That is unfolding before us today. So now is the time for American communities to commit themselves to understanding this enemy because the enemy's here too. And if we fail to do that, if we fail to have our law enforcement, our elected officials, our community leaders uh, understand this enemy, uh, then eventually we'll see it conquer our own civilization. That's their goal. That's their goal. The Taliban commander, Mohammed uh, Arif Mustafa, I mean, he said, this is recently, he said, it is our belief that one day Mujahideen will have victory and Islamic law will come not just to Afghanistan, but all over the world. We are not in a hurry. We believe it will come one day. Jihad will not end until the last day. It's time that we wake up and we listen to what they say. We read what they read, and we commit ourselves to fighting that at home and abroad with that understanding. Tommy is always inspiring. Um, yeah, he is. And, and um, he, he is correct that this 
you know, we should separate for a moment our feelings about whether or not it was the right time to get out of Afghanistan with an understanding of what some of the impacts will be. Right. Uh, it You can believe that it was the right time to get out of Afghanistan and also understand that it will be uh, motivating for our jihadist enemies and that they will take other actions elsewhere. Those two things uh, are not diametrically opposed. And not uh, to um, further depress everybody, but it's not just the jihadis either, because we have other enemies, namely Russia and China and and people that wish to see the weak the weakness of the United States and, and seize on that and take advantage of it. Um, and I think we could be in for some, for a dangerous fall. Yeah. I mean, weakness is, is always provocative. It has always been provocative historically. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right, Morgan, to, to say, yeah, we should pay attention to the reality that we will face many new threats and many old threats that will, that will metastasize on account of the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, but we just have to move forward from here, uh, with, uh, with knowledge, with that knowledge and, 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 you know, make better decisions accordingly. It's reality, right? And it's up to the, the, America's young generation to just not make the same mistakes. You know, it doesn't have to be a a bad ending. Okay. And, And if given the opportunity later, I can tell you about lots of little miracles that have happened to me along the way as I, uh, would understand the gravity of what we're up against. Um, you know, we 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 still have the best system of freedom here in this country that's ever been established in five thousand years of recorded human history. But in order to keep it, we just have to be willing to fight. And we have to be willing to understand what threatens it here and abroad. Yeah, and, and we'll say after nine eleven was you know the unite the way the country united was so unique. And I think when America has a common enemy that they can unite against, which we haven't had for a long time, I think Gorbachev said at the end of the Cold War, we're denying you the best gift, which is a an enemy. We're capable of overcoming these threats. It's just a matter of of deciding to do it. That's it. We just have to decide and commit to it. Thank you for listening to today's show. Not Cleared is a project of the Center for Security Policy. We want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at notclear.org so we can get in touch with you.